Good morning, Rogers Park. My name is Phil Adams. I'm the church planning pastor over in West Rogers Park. It's a joy to come and bring God's word to you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, please pull it out. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles at the back. If you put up your hand, someone will bring one to you. But please stand right now to read Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. We're in a series going through the book of Judges titled When God is Not King. So we're going to read from Judges chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 6, and then we're going to go to the end of the story. Judges chapter 9, verse 1 says this. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, if you remember. Now Abimelech, the son of Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that I rule over you? Remember also that I am the bone of your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. And they said, he's our brother, so we should follow him. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubbabel, sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now we're going to go to the end of the story. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to us and shut themselves in, and they went up on the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower, and the, the king came to the tower, and he fought against it, and he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone, threw a stone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to a young man, his arm bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say to me, A woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all of the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that every word in your word is valuable. God, every word in your word points us to truth. So God, we thank you that this morning we gather as your people, as your body, God, and we gather around truth this morning. So speak into our hearts in your name. Amen. Please take a seat. Before we, we jump into this, this story of Abimelech and Gideon and Abimelech in this passage, take a look on the, the screen behind me. Yeah. Where do, you th where do you think this is? Where do you think this might be? And don't look at the Disney logo down there. Does anybody have any ideas where this might be? What you're looking at is the fictional world of, of Narnia created in the mind of C.S. Lewis. And what I was hoping for was somebody that might shout, it looks like Ireland. 
Somebody was thinking it. Somebody was thinking it. But if you were thinking that, you would also be right. Because C.S. Lewis, the creator of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was born in Ireland. He was born in, in, in Belfast. And later in his life, what inspired him, fun fact for you, what inspired him in creating the, the fictional world of Narnia was the countryside of Ireland, and in particular, a little county called County Down, which just happens to be the part of Ireland that Ruth and I are from. So as you, yeah, so as you can imagine, Ruth and I grew up frolicking in the fields with dwarfs and fawns and all kinds of magical <laughs> and mystical creatures. But when my parents got when my parents got married, they built they built a house on, on top of a, a hill which was on my grandfather's farm. And on top of the hill, they were looking out over over Belfast. And and this feels like a little bit of an exaggeration because that kind of looks incredible. But the view from my house growing up was kind of close. It was kind of the kind of view that if you thought what would inspire C.S. Lewis to create Narnia was the kind of the view I grew up with from my house, and I woke up every day to this incredible view, but you know what? I barely noticed it. Because seeing it day after day after day made me numb to it. I woke up every day and I walked past this view on my way to school or on my way to a friend's house. I walked through the fields to my grandparents' house thinking about when the next Grand Theft Auto came out because I heard there was going to be helicopters. I remember going and walking one day, and, and I, I was walking down, down the road, and uh, I bumped into this carload of, of American tourists. It's always a scary thing. And, and they all ju they jumped out of the car with all of their cameras saying, oh my gosh. And it's my best American accent. <laughs> and, oh my gosh. I know you're not all teenage girls from LA. I didn't know that. And I remember honestly thinking as they seen them all running out of their car, what are you doing? What, what are you looking at? I was numb to the wonder and to the beauty. We haven't lived in Ireland now for seven years, and now I've got a Vizio smart TV. <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs> and I, I don't really understand it, but, but if you don't stop watching TV, there's this kind of screensaver that it comes on, and there's all of these incredible photos of the most beautiful places on, on earth. And I'm not joking, after three years of, of living in the concrete jungle of Chicago, Ruth and I find ourselves sometimes late at night just kind of sitting in front of this screen, kind of <laughs> salvinating a little bit. And one of us will say, where, where do you think that is? And then every night again, one of our eyes will get really big, and one of us will say, I think it's Ireland. <laughs> Growing up, I became numb to all of the wonder and, and, all, and all of the beauty, but now that I realize what it's like without it, I pine for it. This morning, we're in the book of Judges, and we find ourselves reading about a people who've become numb to the wonder and the beauty of God's grace. Not the numb to the beauty of scenery, but numb to the wonder of God's grace and God's kindness. something that should be captivating them, wasn't even drawing their attention. They were maybe coming to church, and they were maybe reading their Bible, what, what should be 
captivating all of their attention every morning when they woke up wasn't even drawing their attention. This morning we're going to look at the story of Abimelech. But before we go and get into Abimelech, we need to back up a little bit. We need to find ourselves uh, getting reacquainted with the story of Gideon. A few weeks ago, we took two weeks to look at the story of Gideon. And as we looked at the life of Gideon, we seen a man who started off and he was questioning his own strengths and his own abilities, a man who was very unsure of himself, a man who God had to encourage and, and push into action because Gideon believed he was a nobody. He believed he could not be a hero, that he could never deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. And the truth was, he was right. He was entirely right. He couldn't in his own strength. But in Gideon's story, we see God using the weak so that it's clear that God is the one that brings the victory. And in Judges 7, Gideon is leading the Israelites to battle against the Midianites, and as if having insecure Gideon as their leader wasn't enough to question whether Israel was going to beat the Midianites, just before they go into battle, God says something to them, and he says something in Judges chapter 7, verse 2. It says, God said to Midian, the people with you are too many. Your army's too big for me to give you the Midianites, to, me, to let you win, because you're going to just boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. You're going to say that you saved yourself. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. In the end, God took an army of, of 32,000 people, and he whittled it down to 300, and still God brought the victory. Why? Because God wanted to use the weak to make it clear that he's the one that brings the victory. But what's strange is that it seems that Gideon misses the point. It seems explicit in that situation that when God works through 300 instead of 32,000, it seems explicit that God deserves the praise. But somehow Gideon misses the point and his pride begins to puff up. And when his pride begins to puff up, he goes from being an insecure leader with low self-esteem to a brutal leader wielding his power against anyone that gets in his way. But what, what we find towards the end of Gideon's life is that Israel love it. They love it. They see the leader, they see Gideon enacting all of his brutality and power, and they think, that's the kind of king we want. And it's through these little clues that we begin to see as we go through Judges, we begin to see Israel function not so much like the people of God, but like the people of Canaan. They love the kind of leader Gideon is becoming so much that they go to him in Judges chapter 8, verse 22, and they say to Gideon, become our king. Rule over us, because you saved us from the Midianites. And Gideon's response is pretty good. You can see it in, in chapter 8, verse 23. It's, pre it's pretty good. He says, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And it's, it's pretty good. And it's pretty convincing if you look at the words, but it's not so convincing if you look at his actions. Gideon, he's just giving lip service. 
and saying what he thinks is the right thing. And we know this because of his behavior. His words say one thing, but his behavior says a totally other thing. By his behavior, you would think that he knelt down right there and then and got a crown placed on his head. Gideon is like, I, I can't be your king. God hasn't chosen me, and he's the king. But what we can do is this. As a gesture of your submission to me as the king, since we've just won a war and we have all of this treasure, give to me all of the golden earrings. It's kind of a weird thing to ask for, all of the golden earrings. (laughs) But Israel do. They give Gideon as a sign of submission. They give him all of their golden earrings, and Gideon takes the gold, and in verse 27, he makes what's called an ephod, and there's kind of confusion as to what an ephod really is, but it's some kind of statue that Gideon creates out of the gold, and he also uses the purple robes that he stole from the Midianite kings that he defeated, and the Israelites began to worship this statue, and as the Israelites begin to worship this ephod, Gideon became ensnared by his association with it. It's as if this statue is a symbol of all that Gideon has done, and Gideon's association with this statue swells his pride even more. And this statue stood right in the middle of Gideon's hometown, where he lived with all of his wives and all of his concubines, enough to give him 70 sons, not even including his daughters. Gideon said no to being king, and it looks kind of like he said yes. Gideon has become like a kid who's just stuffed his face full of cookies, and there's chocolate all over his face, and he's trying to persuade his parents that he didn't eat a cookie. Gideon said no to being king, and yet it kind of looks like he said yes. Gideon at the cookies. But what I want you to see this morning as we go through Gideon's story and Abimelech's story is the breakdown of the cycle. If you think back, there's been a cycle every week as we've gone through Judges. But as we get to the story of Abimelech, this cycle begins to break down. But I want you to think about what this cycle was. All through Judges, we've seen how Israel sinned, then Israel are taken captive, then God sends a deliverer, and then Israel are delivered. Then when the deliverer dies, they return back to their sin, and then they're taken captive, and then God raises up a deliverer, and then they're delivered. And then when the deliverer dies, they return back to their sin, and then they're taken captive, and so on, and so on. And the cycle continues But what stands out as we read, as we read the end of Gideon's life, is that the cycle breaks down. The stages and the cycles are beginning to get skipped and kind of skewed and mixed up. And one of the things was, it it used to be that Israel would be delivered by a judge God raised up, and then they would wait until the deliverer died before returning to their sin. But now in the story of Gideon, Israel don't even wait until Gideon dies before they begin worshiping the statue of gold. Sin is becoming more and more internal to the life of Israel. Not so much something out there that's creeping in, but something that's in here creeping out. The time between God delivering Israel and then Israel rejecting God is getting smaller and smaller. It's as if Israel are becoming more and more indifferent to God's grace. Sin is becoming more and more internal to the life of Israel. 
Not so much something out there creeping in, but something in here that's creeping out. And so when Gideon dies, it's as if Israel are just let loose. And we have one of the lowest points in the whole Bible. And you think, we've, heard, we've been reading some stories, and there have been kind of pretty low points in the Bible. So how can this be one of the lowest points in the Bible? Listen to, to verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, as soon as he died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Beals and made Beal their God. They made Beal their God. And what is so heartbreaking about this is that so far during the cycles of sin in Israel's life, you could say that Israel have been cheating on God. You could say they've been having an affair. You could say that they've seen somebody and, and they spend some time with them and then they go back to God and they sometimes see them again and go back to God and they're, they're cheating on God. And you'll see that the writer uses this kind of language to refer to Israel's behavior as whoring after other gods. But why this verse is so serious is that they aren't sneaking off to a seedy hotel to visit their mistress anymore. They've just went to work one day and never came home. They have committed themselves wholeheartedly to somebody else. Israel made Beal their god. The God of Canaan has become the God of Israel. So the question we've got to ask ourselves, how did this happen? How did they get to the point of replacing God in their life? How did the cycle of sin spiral down so low? And we get the answer to the next verse in verse 34 of Judges chapter 9. And the people, where it says this, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. The people of God did not remember the Lord their God. What, what's so, so, so startling about this is that it says they didn't decide one day to go out and reject God. They didn't think, I'm about to become an atheist today. I'm about to leave God. I'm never going to church again. I hate God. I hate the church. I hate the people of God. I hate the Bible. I hate praying. And I'm not going to do that anymore. That's not what happened. What's so startling about this verse is it says they didn't decide one day to go out and reject God. They just forgot about him. It wasn't necessarily sudden. It wasn't necessarily acknowledged and talked over between husbands and wives around the dinner table. They didn't necessarily set out to reject God. They just forgot about him. Israel had become numb to the wonder and the beauty of God's grace and kindness by gradually forgetting about him. They woke up every day in front of this beautiful scenery and history which was worthy of their undivided attention. And then they walked right past it. They became indifferent to it. They didn't think it was a big deal. Maybe they seen others still in wonder, jumping out of cars, taking pictures of it, but in their minds they were thinking, what are you looking at? There's nothing to see. 
Ever since we started this series going through the book of Judges, God has been intervening in the life of Israel with kindness and grace. And it started in the first half of chapter 3 with Israel doing whatever was right in their own eyes, which caused them to be sold into the, to a neighboring king. And God raised up Othniel, if you remember that, to deliver them. And then again, in the second half of chapter 3, they did whatever they wanted, which caused them to be taken captive by Eglon, king of Moab, which oppressed them for 18 years before God graciously raised up Ehud to set them free. Then again, they did what was right in their own eyes, and they were oppressed by the Philistines, and God graciously raised up Shamgar to save them. Then again, in chapter 4, they did whatever they wanted, which caused them to be sold to the king of Canaan, and God graciously raised up Deborah to be their deliverer. And then again, in chapter 6, they did whatever they wanted in their own eyes, and they were oppressed by Midian before God graciously found an insecure, unable man called Gideon, who God graciously used to set Israel free. All through, all through the book of judges, there has been this beautiful cycle of events where God has been transforming a cycle of sin into a cycle of grace, communicating to Israel, even though you keep rejecting me, I'm graciously going to keep saving you and protecting you and setting you free. But at the end of Gideon's life, Israel became indifferent to God's patience indifferent to his kindness, indifferent to his grace. Israel had become numb to the wonder and the beauty of God's grace and God's kindness. They woke every, up every day and they walked past it. They became indifferent to it. They didn't think it was a big deal. They may be seeing other people still in wonder, but in their minds, they were like, what are you looking at? What are you doing with your hands up? What are you doing so absorbed in the Word of God? Why do you keep talking about Him? What are you looking at? Have you ever wondered how this happens? How do we just forget about God? How do we gradually become indifferent and numb to God's grace and God's kindness? We might be coming to church, maybe even reading our Bibles, but we sense this kind of dampened spirit this spirit of indifference, and we don't even want it, but we feel it. We maybe remember times in our lives where we felt close to God, and we want that back, and yet it just seems like we don't get it. We want to feel God's grace. We want to feel the awe and the wonder, but it's just not there anymore. How does this happen? This next statement is one to take note of because it will help you to remember and it will help me to remember. We get ourselves into the position of indifference towards God's grace when we first become indifferent to our sin. We get ourselves into the position of indifference towards God's grace when we first become indifferent to our sin. When sin gradually settles into our lives as a habit that becomes unnoticed, God's grace gradually becomes less noticeable as well. Maybe at first we used to feel guilty. We would seek God's forgiveness, and we would rejoice in the cross, and we would turn back to God in repentance, knowing as God's child we have grieved our Heavenly Father, and we would experience God's undeserved grace and feel gratitude to be back in the arms of our Savior. But that was six months ago. 
And since then, the cycle of sin in our lives has continued, and the cycle of sin has begun to not only cycle around, but to spiral down to the point that the sin of six months ago has become the norm of today. Friends, when, when sin spirals down in our lives, the step before it spirals out of control is the step where it settles in. When sin spirals down in our lives, the step before it spirals out of control is the step where it settles in. The gossip that used to grieve you, the lust that used to sadden you a bit, the greed that you used to fight to restrain, and the bitterness that you've stopped trying to stamp out in your heart has gone from being the sin of the past to the norm of the present. Church, as the sin of Israel continued to cycle around and around and spiral down and down, what used to be called sin became called acceptable. Israel couldn't see the wonder of God's grace because their sin had become so internal and so acceptable that they didn't even notice it anymore. If you want to know why we feel like we can't see God's grace, it's because the wonder of God's grace is only really visible when God's grace is seen as a response to our sin. And if we have accepted the sin of our past as the norm of today, we've stopped shining a light on that which makes God's kindness so incredible. When we resign ourselves to jealousy, when we resign ourselves to lust and we stop fighting it, it grows uninhibited. And we think that the worst thing will be chronic discontentment or a broken sex life when we get married. When in reality, the worst thing that happens when our sin becomes the norm is we lose the wonder of God's grace and God's kindness. If we've stopped seeing our sin, we've stopped seeing our need. And when we stop seeing our need for God's grace, we are no longer going to be in awe of Him. And if we don't do anything about it and let the cycle continue and spiral down, we'll, first we'll stop seeing our need for grace, and then we'll stop seeing our need for God. And just like the Israelites, we'll forget about Him. Sin that's become acceptable numbs the wonder of God's grace. We cannot be insensitive towards our sin and then expect to be sensitive to God's grace at the same time. That's the mistake that Israel made. We cannot be insensitive towards our sin and then expect to be sensitive to God's grace at the same time. And that's where Israel at. They're numb. Numb and insensitive to their sin, and consequently numb and insensitive to God's grace. So the question is, what's next for Israel? It's not a good place to be. And it kind of goes as you would expect. The sin that began in the life of Gideon went on, and it snowballed. It unraveled in the life of his son, Abimelech. Gideon's pride had caused him to subtly call his son, son of the king. Abimelech meant son of the king, which is funny for a guy who said he wasn't the king. And now Abimelech's pride causes him to not so subtly demand to be the king. You kind of couldn't make this stuff up. Abimelech went to his mother's side of the family in chapter 9, verse 1, and he said, we read this earlier, 
He said, look, there are 70 sons and Gideon is dead and there's going to be a king and to keep things simple, I think I should be the king. And his mother spoke to the leaders of Shechem and Shechem was where Abimelech's family lived and they decided because he was related to them, they would likely reap some benefits if he was the king, so they decide to support him in his campaign. And where do you hear the campaign strategy? Chapter 9, verse 4, they made a campaign donation, and they gave Abimelech 70 pieces of silver, which they took from the temple of Baal. And Abimelech hired what the Bible calls worthless and reckless fellows, fellows, who he hired to go and kill his opposition. 70 pieces of silver to kill 70 brothers. So we read in verse 5 that Abimelech went with these men and they systematically killed each brother on one stone one at a time. Then the leaders came to Abimelech and they made him the king. In many ways, Israel have officially got the king they wanted Gideon to be, a brutal leader. He will do whatever it takes to hold office. And as we keep reading Abimelech's story, it feels like things are unraveling because they are. Because the cycle of grace that we have seen for the last number of weeks through the book of Judges and through our series is being replaced in this story with a different cycle. So Abimelech kills his brothers and we see in verse 5 that one brother survives and his brother Jotham goes to the top this youngest brother that's kind of got out of being killed in that stone, he goes to the top of a mountain nearby and he calls for the leaders of Shechem to listen, to listen about what they've done and the person that they've placed up there as the king. And he kind of stays on this mountain because he doesn't want to get too close in case they kill him. And he basically tells the leaders of Shechem from this mountain, he shouts out, you will get what you asked for. He, he tells this, this fable, this, this story that, that says making Abimelech king is like trying to find shade under the thorns of a bramble bush. You're looking shade, but you're just going to get pricked by all the thorns. Jotham goes on, and in verse 20, he speaks over Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem who put Abimelech in power, and, and he declares to them, because of the evil that you both have done, May Abimelech rise up and destroy Shechem, and may Shechem rise up and destroy Abimelech. And in the later part of chapter 9, that's exactly what happens. In verse 26, Shechem rebels against Abimelech, so Abimelech turns on them. The people have put him in power and uses all of his brutality to wipe them out. And then Abimelech continues on his rampage, being the leader that he was, and as he's fighting at the bottom of a tar, a woman throws a stone from the top of the tar and it lands on Abimelech's head. And Abimelech's last words in his dying breath, he can't even hold off his pride. He asks a soldier to quickly finish him off so people don't remember that it was a woman that killed him. The last two verses of Abimelech's story in chapter 9 read like this, and this sums up the story. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all of the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them caused the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. 
Over this series, we've been preaching the cycle of God's grace, that Israel sin and then God graciously sends deliverer, Israel sin again, and then God graciously sends a deliverer. And we've been preaching that because that's what the stories have taught us, and that's what the stories have pointed us to. But the story of Abimelech is the story of a different cycle, an even simpler cycle, the cycle of direct consequence. And we see it very clearly in the story of Abimelech. Abimelech killed his brothers one by one on a stone, and that stone is returned right back round and lands on his head. He got a stone, and he killed all of his brothers on it. And then at the end of the chapter, God takes that stone and drops it from a tar, and it lands on his head. Abimelech very clearly, the story of Abimelech very clearly and very directly shows that Abimelech gets what he deserves. Abimelech's sin, like, the, like Israel's sin, has become acceptable. It's become the norm. He stops seeing it, and it spirals down until he gets what he deserves. What do we do with that? If you gather with us every week, you're probably waiting for that point that I preach and say some things that maybe go a little bit like this. Although we have disobeyed God, although we have fought to be the king of our lives, although there was a stone of judgment coming for our heads, Jesus came and he intervened in our situation so the stone directed towards us was taken by him. That's not this story. And as as difficult as this is, the reason that this is not this story is because Abimelech, because Abimelech is past that. Hang on, Phil. (laughs) Past God's grace? Like God's grace is no longer available? Romans 2, 4 to 5 says this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is tended to lead you to repentance? Cycle after cycle, God intervened with grace and patience, seeking to lead Israel back to him. But their numbness to their sin caused numbness to God's grace, and what was meant to draw them back to God went unnoticed. God's patience was to cause them to repent, and it didn't, and then the time passed. Seth Rogers Park, the story of Abimelech is a microcosm of what will one day be. For those who live their lives walking past God's grace, or live in parts of the world where they do not know of God's grace, or are indifferent to it, 
or who live in the glorious shadow of God's grace without noticing. The cycle of God's grace will become the cycle of consequence. One day the whole of humanity will stand before God and we will either be able to say that we responded to God's grace in repentance and Christ bore the consequence for our sin or we ourselves will bear the consequence. That is the microcosm, that is the story, that is the theme, that is what Abimelech is telling us and pointing us to. We need to hear that. We need to know that. Because when we lose sight of our sin and we lose sight of the consequences of our sin, we're going to lose sight of God's grace. We're going to lose sight of how wonderful it is and how good it is and how good Christ is. You know who started me on a journey of falling in love with the beauty of Ireland? It wasn't my parents. And it wasn't my, it wasn't my friends or my family. They didn't notice so much either. It was a bunch of crazy Americans jumping out of a car making a fuss about it. And I wondered, what are you looking at? Church, the grace of God is incredible. It's beautiful and it is majestic. It's worth buying a plane ticket and flying over and renting a car to take a look at. And I know that many of you know that and I know that because we preach it every week. I wrote down a list of things I know you know. You know God didn't have to reveal himself to us, but he did. You know God didn't have to set a plan of redemption in place, but he did. You know God doesn't have to be patient with us, but he is. You know God didn't have to adopt us as his children and become our father, but he did. You know God doesn't have to love us, but he does. You know God didn't have to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west, but he did. You know God didn't have to empower us to follow him with his spirit, but he did. You know he didn't have to send his son to bear the consequences that we deserve, but he did. You know God didn't have to save us and then keep us, but he does. You know God didn't have to give us a family of brothers and sisters, but he did. You know God doesn't have to draw you back to himself this morning, but he does. You know God didn't have to give us a role to play in his mission, but he did. Church, we know the beauty of the gospel. We preach it every Sunday. We just need to get out of the car and make a fuss about it. Because church, when we are in here, there are people out there. And for whatever reason, they've become numb to God's grace and his kindness. And they're waking up every day and they're walking past it. They're living in the shadow of it, and they don't see it. And they need an opportunity to ask somebody that's making a fuss about it, what are you looking at? And they won't ask us as long as we're in the car looking out the window. We've got to be on the streets. We've got to be noticeable and approachable and present in people's lives in our neighborhood. We've got to orient our lives around welcoming people into our lives and into our homes. We've got to orient our lives about entering into others' lives and entering into others' homes. 
so that they can ask the question of what we already know and why we know it and why we're so excited about it. I'll close with this. Last summer, we went back to Ireland. And when we went, we went out for dinner one night, we went out with, with some friends, Raymond and Rebecca. And it was, it was deep in the, in the Irish countryside, and we were going down all of these windy little roads, and the sun was saddling, setting over the hills. And we were driving along slowly. We were looking at the view. And then we came across this donkey. <laughs> was right there, the one inside of the fence. So I, I, pull, I pulled in, in the car and uh, pulled up in the car and uh, to take a picture. And I, I kind of climbed up and I was kind of sitting like oddly kind of halfway out the, the car door and kind of leaning on the fence to take this picture right up close to this donkey. And as we were waiting to try and get, I was trying to get this picture and then our friends, Raymond and Rebecca, they're driving up behind us and then they, he, he toots the horn. <laughs> And then he, he, like, sticks his head out the door, and he says, Come on, let's go, you Americans. <laughs> and I shouted back, It's beautiful. Look, it's beautiful. That's what we're to do. We're to be in people's lives so that we can say, Look, it's beautiful. Because one day the consequences will come. The cycle of God's grace. It's what we believe. It's what we teach. It's what the scriptures teach us, is that one day we will stand before God, and we will either say that Christ bore the consequences of our sin because we responded in repentance, or we will bear the consequences of our sin. But Christ came, and it's beautiful, and people need to know that. So we need to start hanging out of our cars. We need to start hanging outside our churches, pointing and saying, look, it's beautiful. The wonder of God's grace and kindness is beautiful. Let's pray. God, we thank you so, so much for what you've done in your, our lives. God, you've revealed yourself. You've made yourself known, God. God, we have turned back to you, God, in repentance of our sin, knowing that you are our only hope, God, and we love coming here and worshiping and singing to you, God, and praising you. But God, may we remember those people that aren't praising. Maybe remember those that aren't singing. Those that have not responded in repentance to your love and your grace. God, give us love for them. Give us the guts, God, and the courage to reorient our, reorient our lives. Give us guts to reorient our church, God, as of what we need to do to reach people, God, in this neighborhood and in this world. In your name.